Welcome back, students and faculty. I am Professor Castor, and we will continue our reading of the Histories of the Iron Kingdom, brought to you by the fantastic writers and historian of Privateer Press. And we will be reading from The Rise of the Twins. Even between the vast cycles of history, some events are so significant they forever change the shape of the world. So it was with the rise of the twins to enlightenment. Maru and Thamar were once mortals born in Caspia, but they transcended their flesh to become gods. They defined their path and time when all men were slaves to the gods and kings. The Minite faith had become unquestionably dominant and unbreakable chains of spiritual fealty bound every human being to their creator. The true law governed all aspects of life. Though civilization had come to a moral, for the vast majority this had only meant servitude in the hands of spiritual tyrants. The twins left their mark across the moron and drew thousands of followers who learned from their example. The insidious and subservient Thamar was selfish and fascinated by darkness. She felt true power was boundless and came from the strength of the individual to exert personal will over the masses. Thamar taught that morality was the prison of truth and freedom. She delved into forgotten occult lore and profane secrets in the pursuit of illuminable powers. Selfless and fascinated by the light, Morrow believed there was more to life than battle and blind obedience to the law of the Creator. He taught that a good person must think of others before himself. Thousands followed in his example and looked inward for answers. He said the leading was good life required the will to protect the well-being of others, to the right and justice, and to fight honorably in war. His warrior philosopher's ideas spread faster than the Minites could contain them. Eventually, Maru and Thamar marched together on Caspia, beseeching mankind to seek their freedom from religious oppression. The Minite priest kings of the city, Hierarch Helitius, met the twins and their followers in battle. Maro fought the priest kings personally, eventually disarming him and demanding his surrender. Before the man could speak, Thamar struck him down, an act that Maro could not abide. The people of Caspia welcomed the siblings as heroes and begged Maro to rule the city and guide its people. Seeking harmony, Maro reached an accord with the remaining Minite priesthood. He promised to protect the sanctity of the Minite's temple and pay homage to the Creator and to punish Thamar for the murder of Hierarch Halitius. Maro exiled Thamar from Caspian walls. Thamar wandered the fringes of civilization where she continued her war with the Minites and sowed seeds of discontent in Caspia from afar. She returned to the city six years later and took command of an army that rose up from within its walls. As she made her way to Morrow's palace, buildings around her crumbled and the dead rose to feast on the living. The twins met outside what would eventually become the sanctum, the holiest ground of the Morrowind faith. In a frenzy of destructive power, Thamar blackened the sky and summoned a storm of fire that threatened to consume the city. As she prepared to destroy all that Morrow had built, he saw the only way to stop her was to sacrifice himself. He stepped forward and accepted the brunt of her wrath. When Thamar struck him down, all witnessed as his spirit ascended into the sky, and the unnatural storm was dispersed by the light brighter than the sun. 
The power of Morrow's apotheosis stilled the air, crumbled the walking dead to ash, and protected those gathered from Thamar's power. Empowered by Morrow's example and no longer fearing Thamar, the masses overwhelmed her and tore her apart. In death, too, she too ascended. Her flesh turned to black smoke and the wound its way to the arcane. As a divine being, she became the goddess of temptation, indulgence, dark magic, and deception. The rise of the twins marked the beginning of the Thousand Cities era. City-states of every size arose, each with its own warlord or petty king. Tavern-born treaties and back-alley allegiances lasted only as long as it took to muster armies to war. Though the warfare never ceased, the claims of kings began to consolidate as they seized the land of their rivals and brought more people under their control. Caspia grew, Thoria rose, and Tudor consumed it. The Midlands unified. The vast Kardec Empire expanded to absorb Kos, Skirov, Umbria, and the Rin people. Caspia experienced the flowering of thought and reason exemplified by the consecration of the Accord Cathedral in the Sanctum, the heart of the Morrowind Church. Kardec engineers invented the steam engine and began to realize its potential. Ships fueled by coal plied the rivers without relying on currents or winds. In the west, the dirge-messed captains of Tudor formed an armada stronger than the world has ever seen, and sails of thousands of ships spread across the ocean from horizon to horizon. Now we move on to Slavery and Rebellion, brought to you by, of course, Privateer Press and the historians of them. In one of the greatest tragedies of Amoran's long history, just as the region was experiencing the golden era of advancement, sleek shadows crossed the Meridius, Black ships sailed by invaders bent on conquest. The arrival of the Orgoth would eclipse even the ascensions of the twins and leave an inedible stain across history. Western Amorn was thrown into an even darker age, and all the progress won through so many blood, bloody quarrels was undone. The invasion of the Orgoth and the long period of their occupation forever changed the region. This grim era lasted for eight centuries but it divided into three distinct periods, invasion and bloody subjugation, occupation and dom domination, and long rebellion that eventually served to drive out the invaders. The Orgoth possessed a rapacious hunger for slaughter and enslavement, while humans they proved crueler and more calculated than any race has ever encountered. Although it is true that the men of Western Amorn were also warlike, the old warlords had fought and understandable goals, obeyed codes of behavior, and sometimes heeded priestly advice. In contrast, the Orgoth embraced carnage and cruelty with dreadful enthusiasm. The Tadoran armada sailed to meet the Orgoth ship to ship, but the Orgoth sent out proud Tadoran vessels to the bottom of the deep. Countless longboats then spilled cruel warriors on the beaches of Amoran. The once warring tribes and towns of thousand cities fought valiantly, together for the first time, but disorganized defenders failed to stop the invaders. The magic that the Orgoth came from was the dark powers they consorted with, and the terrible weapons they crafted were forged with using that magic. Minet war priests and Morrowind battle chaplains brought the power of their gods and fought as best they could, but were undone. The Orgoth subdued Amoran with rivers of blood in an inexorable conquest spanning two centuries. The Orgoth did not seek to destroy Western Amoran, they enslaved it. 
Camps of starving men and women compelled by the whip and the threat of torture pounded the roads still used today. Thousands of stone-torn stone hands erected the basalt fortress and towers of the conquerors. All of western and Morn cities, Caspia alone held the invaders at bay. Keeping safe by its towering walls, despite the strength of its defenses, Caspia's armies were soundly defeated every time they ventured forth to meet the Orgoth in battle. For four centuries, the Orgoth occupied the land, all but uncontested, plunging the people into enduring darkness. The eventual revolt against the Orgoth took two centuries to succeed. The tide of bitter hatred spread throughout the enslaved masses and restored the fire in their eyes. But this spirit of resistance was not enough itself. Eventually, rebellion required weapons and carries the cost of blood. Though some do not like to speak of it, evidence suggests that dark goddess Thamar played a part in giving humanity its first manifestation of sorcery, known simply as the gift. The arcane power and mechanical wonders taken for granted in the modern era were unknown before the gift. Mir miracles and magic had been the sole province of the gods, their agents, and those who conspired with darkness and unknowable powers. The magic afforded by the gift of Thamar was something else, the ability to manipulate the very laws of nature through the application of will and arcane formulae. It would be centuries before Arcanists understood the extent of this power, but it quickly proved to be a formidable weapon for the rebellion. The study of alchemy played a vital role in this. Coming into its own after survivors of the Battle of the Hundred Wizards of Tudor fled to the city of Laren and invented the first firearms. These weapons served to earn the number of early victories, proving the Orgoth could be bested, though. These arms alone were not enough to turn the Orgoth aside. The tyrants had their own unholy weapons, as well as the war witches capable of tearing a man's soul from his flesh. It was the coupling of the principles of engineering with the endless possibilities allowed by magic that created the new science of Mechanica, which would prove to be the key to the eventual victory. The early practitioners of this nascent area of study conceived the first colossal, a steam-driven construct of gears, irons, and smoke standing 50 feet tall. It only remained to find the means to build these iron behemoths without detection of the Orgoth. Man's commitment and resourcefulness so impressed the dwarves of rule that they pledged their aid. The Orgoth had never conquered the northern people, having been rebuked by the great southern fortresses of Horgenhold. After a single massive assault, they had hereafter ignored the nation, leaving them isolated amid the remote mountains of rule. Rule did not confront Orgoth directly, but provided humanity iron ore, fabricated steel, and mechanical expertise and transformed the Colossal from an engineering dream to a towering reality. The smoke-belching, steam-powered construct built in the factories of Caspia were truly monumental achievements. As impressive as the Colossals were, their success in battle relied on the Warcasters who controlled them. Shortly after the first Colossal was created, some few battle wizards awakened to their potential could communicate mentally with the cerebral matrixes that served as artificial minds inside the machines. By an effort of will, these battle wizards guided the Colossals into battle. This sharing of minds between man and machine was something the Orgoth could not match, and over the next few years their fortresses fell one by one to the rebellion armies that brought together soldiers from across the land to fight alongside the Colossals. Every giant footstep 
pushed the enemies farther west. They fled back to the sea, but did not go quietly. As they retreated, the Orgoth raised cities, poisoned wells, salted fields, and otherwise defiled the land as an act of remembrance as the scourge. After the defeat of the Orgoth, humanity would divide its histories into two distinct epochs, BR, before the rebellion, and AR, after the rebellion. In the year 201 AR, the rebellion finally drove the Orgoth from Amoran. Birth of the Iron Kingdoms Following the defeat of the Orgoth, the Amuris rediscovered what it meant to govern themselves. In 202 AR, the leaders of the victorious armies called the Council of Ten met in Corvus, the city of ghosts. The council hammered out the map of the new Iron Kingdoms on their political anvils during deliberation called the Corvus Treaties. After many weeks, the negotiations gave rise to four kingdoms, Signar to the south, encompassing the Thornwood, the Midlands, Caspia, and a significant portion of what had been Thuria, Ord in the west, unifying northern Thuria and all of Tordor, Lael to the northeast, including what had been Raynar, and the eastern lands of Old Umbri, and then Kodor in the north, with the rest of the northwest, including the old Cardic lands, Kos, Skirov, and western Umbri. These four great nations were briefly united by peace until old rivalries soon set in once again at one another's throats. The early decades after the rebellion were dominated by reconstructive efforts across the new kingdoms. Technological gains reaped during the rebellion provided benefits during the reconstruction particularly the swift re-emergence of the steam-powered machinery. The Arcanists of the Fraternal Order of Wizardry expanded their arcane research and established major branches in most significant cities across Signar, Ord, and Lael. The Fraternal Order continued to innovate, further refining the cerebral matrix into its first true cortex, a tremendous improvement that allowed the production of smaller and more practical arcane constructs. Meanwhile, Kodor seized over the lost territories and the need to rely on foreign agencies like the Fraternal Order for cortexes and blasting powder, having greatly expanded its industrial capabilities that northern nations quietly began restoring the armed might. King Lavish Tebeski knew his nation stood in the peril and could never properly defend itself so long as Colossals remained solely in the hands of Signarns. He ordered new foundries secretly built in Korsk, and his spy masters contacted arcanists of Kodor and Blood, who were gone abroad to learn the secrets of various arcane orders. Appealing to the arcanist patriot spirit, the king's spies urged them to abandon their organization and bring their knowledge of alchemy and mechanics back to the motherland. They did, plundering the fraternal order stronghold in Cyril in 243 AR. Among the stolen treasures were hundreds of irreplaceable tombs and arcane lore, countless alchemical formulae, and the most important dozens of cortex fabrication schematics. King Tbeski rewarded the conspirators richly, many with titles. Arcanists without the Arcane Order, they formed an exclusive Kodoran Greylord's Covenant, which quickly became an extension of the military, inextricably connected to the nation's spy network. Kodor could now make as many cortexes as resources allowed. A New Age of War Signar did not immediately respond to Ghidorin's reassertment, instead becoming embroiled in a massive Trollkin uprising that swept in the Gnarls and the Thornwood in 242 AR. While the Trollkin creels of these regions had been given allowances in the Corvus Treaties, humans seeking resources to fuel the reconstruction were continually violating their lands. 
Humans were already exploiting every waterway and ship goods and materials, and the Creels saw their territories being overrun in blatant disregard of their agreements. General unrest soon escalated into war, which, which swept through northern Signar and southern Ord. Eventually, Signar committed its colossals to the Battle of the Trolken. The Trolken surrendered in 247 AR after suffering heavy losses, ending the First Trolken War. By the time Signar spies had learned the great foundries working on the war material in Kursk, accordingly, the Signar and Colossals remained in the region where they would guard the borders shared with Kodor. Such a deterrent was not enough to prevent the onset of new war. Three years later, King Tabeski attacked both western Lale and northern Ord, invading the lands that once had been part of the old Kodoric Empire. The conflict engulfed all the Iron Kingdoms as Lael, Signar, and Ord banded together against Kodor. For the first time, Colossals clashed face to face. The old Signaran machine did not fare well in early battles, suffering against the more modern and heavily armored Kodoran machine, which took advantage of design advancements from the last several decades. Signaran foundries blazed day and night to produce new Colossals. The Colossal War spiraled into a seven-year conflict that shattered the peace of the Corvus Treaties. Ultimately, Kador's war industry proved incapable of replacing their machines as they fell. The Motherland's foundries were not as extensive as Forges of Caspia. Kodor finally surrendered as, after a decisive loss in Volengarad. The Kadorn suffered the indignity of dismantling their remaining colossals as well as the foundries they were been built in. In return, Signar ceded back to the lands seized by the Kadorns in the conflict. Although Kodor was temporarily pacified, the Trolkan Creels of the region had regained their strength and had grown increasingly militant, organized, and indignant about the human armies marching through their lands. The Trolkan incursion into Ordic and Signar territories escalated into the Second Trolkan War in 262 AR. The Trolkan had learned from their previous battles and conducted their strikes more strategically, taking advantage of the region's difficult terrain to cover retreats and making it difficult for Signaran's colossals to follow. The gigantic machines began to show their limits having been designed to lay in siege in fixed positions and masses of enemy forces. They had great difficulty with the dense forest and several fell to the Trolkin and the full-blood trolls fighting alongside them in battle. In response, Signar's King Waldred ordered his generals to find a way to innovate new weapons of war. Arcane mechanics serving the army, along with consultants from the Fraternal Order of Wizardry, presented the concept of warjacks making use of smaller but still formidable chassises that had been employed for labor and modifying them for war. The first warjacks served during the final years of the Second Trokan War, proving their effectiveness as the Trokans were driven back. Though the Trokans were eventually suppressed, Signars agreed to grant them additional territories and paid sums for restoration of destroyed villages. In the aftermath of these struggles, Signar decommissioned her colossals, Military strategists and new generation of warcasters were quick to see the advantages and tactical applications of smaller warjacks. The new constructs had been built in the latest and most sophisticated cortexes, had much greater range of motion, and could be fielded more easily alongside infantry. The combination of advances to cortexes along with their ability to independently negotiate terrain meant a warcaster could more easily control multiple warjacks, where areas of colossal used to require dedicated attention. 
Meanwhile, the peace was strengthened by the changing of royal dynasties of Kodor. The long and dark reign of Lavish Tabeski ended with his death in 272 AR. King Dmitri Dopetevek, uh, Kodorans are never going to let me let this down, ousted the warlike Tabeski line and proved to be a more peaceful and diplomatic sovereign. The era of peace lasted with Dmitri was assassinated in 286 AR. The Border Wars. King Dmitri was succeeded by his wife, Charisse. Queen Charisse hoped to take advantage of the Signarian instability in the wake of the King Malagant's ascension to the throne. Her plan was to seize the Northern Thornwood in order to gain the access of the Black River, enabling Kodor to disrupt trade. Charisse entered into an unusual agreement with the savage Tharn tribes of Thornwood, some of the last true descendants of the Mogor encouraging them to attack Signar while Kodor's armies made their own advances. The Tharn proved to be formidable adversaries in the familiar terrain. The Signarans put aside their differences to muster the army in the face of the invasion. It was the start of an extended conflict known as the Border Wars. The first stage of the war abruptly ended when Charisse vanished in 295 AR. King Malekant died of a wasting disease two months after Charisse disappeared. The Signaran secession of the caste into turmoil by Malagant's death, leaving the kingdom for 12 years without a king. During this time, the royal assembly and various military leaders attempted to govern the nation, but all had limited success. Kodor proved quick to take advantage of this situation. Their own succession had placed a child queen on the throne, but she was supported by the ambitious lord Regent Villabor, who ruled in her stead. Seeing the weakness of Signar's position, Velibor struck North Ord. Although some of his initial assaults were repulsed by the stalwart Ordic defenders, the Kadoran army gained momentum and soon began to make solid gains. The Ordic crown appealed to the Signar for aid, but was only given a token military support as the Signarians were still torn by political division. Velibor then deployed a smaller army to attack Eastern Lale. The war continued for several years as both Lely's and Ordic armies failed to halt the Cadorn advance. The Ordic king Olivor Cathor I died in battle of the Broken Sword in 301 AR while heroically leading the charge against the enemy. The Cadorns pressed on and the next year gained the greatest victory of the war with the seizure of the northern Ordic portal city of Redahov which was later named as Volodavar. And if I mispronounce any Kadoran renaming of cities, my Ordic ancestry would be proud. One of Velibor's shrewdest maneuvers was to turn the threat aimed at the heart of the Kodor into a weapon to strike Kodor's enemies. In 304 AR, a horde of northern barbarians rode from the mountains in the forest, intent on pillaging undefended fertile lands of the interior. Velibor met the tribal leaders and convinced them to attack the south. The barbarians turned their numbers against Ord, laying siege to the heavily fortified city of Midfast. Velibor used them as fodder to cover the advance deeper into Ord. The Ordic defenders were pushed back to a long line of rugged hills stretching west and east of Midfast, which had proven difficult to assault. Seeing Midfast as the linchpin of the Ordic defenses, Velibor hoped to crush the city beneath the Horde and sweep on to its capital. Midfast held for weeks against the Horde. Its defenders dwindling, Velibor's plan nearly succeeded and likely would have if not for a brave stand of a single remarkable soldier, Captain Marcus Graza, an Ordic officer and a devout Morrowind. 
This one man single-handedly turned the tide of and humbled the northern barbarian chieftains, buying time for the Ordic reinforcements from the south to sweep the barbarians from the field. Marcus ascended as Maro's newest divine servant after dying in his duel with chieftains, having ensured the security of his kingdom. Seeing the miracle, even the Cadoran armies felt obliged to quit the field. The border wars continued for eight long and bloody years. The siege of Midfast was a major turning port. Cador made no significant gains after that offensive, and Villabor became increasingly unpopular at home. Juliana the Maiden Queen took the Signaran throne in 308 AR and sent armies to support both Ord and Lael. Signar soon entered into its formal alliance with Lael, and the Signaran soldiers of Warjax became a common sight in the last battles of this period. In 313 AR, Cadoran Queen Anne Vanar V, now in her majority, discovered that Velabar and his military advisors had effectively bankrupt the kingdom's treasury, exiling the former Lord Regent. She put an end to the war and sued for peace. Coming on to Troubled Times. The fitful peace held for nearly 150 years before Cadoran and Ordic navies clashed in 464 AR. What began as a dispute over piracy soon erupted into a four-year-long Second Expansion War, which would draw reinforcements from Signar and mercenaries from Lael. Meanwhile, the religious animosity between Minites and Morrowinds that had continued to simmer in Signar degenerated into a bloody civil conflict that would tear the nations in two. The Midites had seen the grasp on the Signoran capital weakened since the time of the twins and had suffered further indignities inflicted by the monarchs of the current age. Anger gave way to open revolt when in 482 AR, the charismatic leader among the Midites named Solon called upon the faithful to gather in eastern Caspia. Tens of thousands from all corners of the kingdom made the trek. As the masses gathered, Solon proclaimed himself hierarch of the faith and simultaneously seized control of Caspias east of the river. The zealous Menites slew hundreds of city watchmen, starting the Signaran civil war, which raged from 482 to 484 AR. The Menites nearly razed the river districts on the west bank of the city in the fighting. The fate of Signar's capital hung in the balance until Solon fell in battle. His death dealt a great blow to the morale of the Menites and opened the door for peace. After patriarch discussion and elicited concessions on both sides, the Protectorate of Meneth was created in the hopes of ending the religious strife. The Menites were ceded an expanse of land east of the Black River and the entirety of eastern Caspia, which they named Sol in honor of the fallen hierarch. The Protectorate had leave to govern their own as they saw fit without interference of the Signaran throne. With this understanding, they would remain part of Signar and subject to disarmament and taxation. Rolson Vigor seized the Cadoran throne in 499 AR and declared Kodor a Minite state. At least half-mad, Vigor claimed to be a Kadarvik reborn and planned to lead a war against the Morrowind nations. Laying the foundation for his conquest, Vigor initiated a number of military reforms and invested his nation's wealth to produce more warjacks than ever before. In 510 AR, he sent the renowned Cadoran cavalry to harass the borders of Lael, knowing the act would draw Signar away from its true objective. At the same time, Vigor personally led an even larger force of warjacks, the full might of Cador's heavy infantry straight into the Thornwood, hoping to drive south and take key Signaran territories, all but unstopped. 
The Gadorns cut straight through the Thornwood, raising a path 200 miles long that came to be called the Warjack Road. If not for the work of scouts from Felig, who discovered the column, Signar may have felt the full brunt of the unexpected Gadorn army deep in its territories. Soldiers hastily drawn from the nearest towns and cities met the Gadorns at the Dragon's Tongue, even as the main army was recalled from the march to defend Lael in the desperate attempt to intercept the Gadorn advance. The Battle of the Tongue in early 511 AR remains one of the bloodiest clashes in the histories of the region, seeing the loss of more warjacks in a single battle than ever before. The war ended in Vigor's death at the hands of then Archduke Venter Rothorn II, who would succeed Malfest as the King of Signar in 515 AR. Moving on to modern times. The decades after the Thornwood War saw many changes across the Iron Kingdoms. The nations fully embraced industrialization, building both factories and railroad lines across the region. The dynasties ruling each of the kingdoms would shape their emergence into the new era. With the death of Vigor, the Cadoran crown returned to Venars, much to the relief of the kingdom's people. Under Venars' rule, Kodor began to experience true change as the rising merchant class called the Kayazi became more influential. They amassed great fortunes and used their wealth to advance the nation's industry. The abolishment of serfdom in 549 AR also brought many eager and poor workers to freshly built factories. King Evad Venar held the throne for an unprecedented 38 years of prosperity. When he died, the crown pa passed to his granddaughter, Ian Venar XI. Throughout her minority, the great industrialization and statesman, Sinoyev Balavarya, again, Kodor names, ruled as regent. He accepted the responsibility of not only commanding the nation, but also raising the next queen. Ord's transition into the modern kingdom came at the direction of Cathor dynasty, which had been established the longest and most consistent rule of the nation. Though wary of Kodor's aspirations to rebuild its empire, the Cathors were cagey rulers who maintained Ord's strict neutrality. The crown eventually came to Bard Cathor II, the third son who never expected to be king. Many thought Bard, who was a gambler, wrestler, would bring ruin to its nation. Instead, he proved to be a shrewd and wise king as ever held the Ordic throne, establishing an expensive spy network and taking measures to bring fair taxation to the masses. Like his predecessor, Bard staunchly maintained the nation's neutrality even amid terrible wars, committing the navy only occasionally against Crixian raiders while keeping the army in reserve to defend his cities and borders. Bard has taken measures to modernize Ord, although his efforts are hindered by its limited treasury and resources. Lael would prove to be less fortunate in its sovereigns, with a line of weak and ineffectual kings contributing to the Interncine court focused solely on petty intrigues. The martyred family gained the throne in 396 AR, but produced no great leaders. The last king of Lael was Renard the Fruitful, who ruled for over 30 years and proved to be popular and charismatic, although he brought no significant reforms. Renard was famous mostly for his virility after siring 16 known offsprings with various wives, which did nothing to preserve his dynasty after his death. From old age, the Lely's nobles fell into a scheming feud and all of Renard's known errors were assassinated. The Archduke of Southorn, Prime Minister Dirar Glebrin, seized control amid this chaos and became Lael's ruler in the absence of any legitimate royal. 
shrewd and ruthless Glaiblin played a key role in the downfall of his nation. Though the Protectorate of Meenith had no dynasties in the proper sense, it entered the modern era under the firm direction of several visionary hierarchs, each of whom moved in the nation toward a greater role in the affairs of the region. Slowly the Protectorate increased its industry and began to produce arms to equip the standing army. Despite prohibition against such measures imposed by Signar, under Hierarch Garrick's Voil, the Protectorate became a truly independent nation. The Rathorns of Signar produced a line of stern but able kings who strengthened their nation. When King Venter III passed with suspicious suddenness in 576 AR, the eldest of his two sons, Venter Rathorn IV, took the crown. Venter proved to be paranoid and tyrannical. His opponents were silenced and, and dissidents made to disappear. His paranoia gave rise to the Inquisition when he transformed his father's discreet network of spies into a merciless system of judges and executioners. The middle years of Venter's reign were marked by a sudden rise in Crixian activity as Signar was battered by a series of coastal assaults known as the Scarred Invasion from 584 to 588 AR. Black ships emerged from the mist to send raiders bent on slaughter and pillage into unsuspecting villages and towns. Eventually, the Crixians were driven from Signar's shores. Following the invasions, Venter's harsh treatment of his people only worsened. As rumors of torture and barbarity at the hands of the Inquisition persisted, the king's brother Leto felt driven to act. Prince Leto moved to overthrow his brother in 594 AR in a battle quickly named the Lion's Coop. Defeated and captured, Venter managed to escape from before judgment could be passed upon him. Taking Leto's wife as hostage, Venter rushed to the top of the palace and seized an experimental airship there. He evaded his pursuers and the winds took him east towards the Bloodstone Marches. Leto became king and the next decade of his rule was seen as the golden era of unprecedented growth, mechanical invention, and advancement. Though many believe that Venter IV persisted during his journey into the eastern stormlands, he returned at the head of a strange army in 603 AR, crossing the Bloodstone Marches along an army of savage race called the Scorn. Venter proved his ambitions to seize back the throne when he attacked the city of Corvus. Before the Signarian army could muster its strength to repulse the unexpected threat, another agency intervened. The exact circumstances of the Corvus liberation are still poorly understood by most, but seem to have involved the old Morrowind prophecy related to a buried legion of mercenaries from the time of King Malagant, drawn forth from their sacred tomb by a young sorceress named Elixia Sianor and her necromantic blade Witchfire. The Legion of Dead fought through the streets of Corvus against the Scorn invaders, eventually driving them from the city. Fenterforth survived and fled back to the lands of the east with the remnants of the Inhuman army. It would not be the last time he made Signar bleed. Moving on to open war. War came once again in the Iron Kingdoms when Kodor massed its full military might against Lael in the last months of 604 AR. Using the winter's slow Signar's ability to reach its allies in time, Kodor hoped to seize victory before Signar's reinforcements could reach Lael. When Signar's army finally entered the war, it was immediately caught up in an increasingly desperate fight across the Lely's countryside. The last and most intense battles of the war took place in defense of Lael's capital, Merowyn, which endured a long and difficult siege. On hearing of Kodoran forces moving in on Thornwood, Signar withdrew its armies to defend its own border, and soon thereafter the capital fell. The entire war lasted less than six months. 
At its conclusion, Queen Anne Venar the 11th declared her nation an empire, crowning herself as Empress in 606 AR. The new Cadoran Empire strove to restore the ancient Cardic Empire, and Empress Ian made it clear that she sought to resume Cador's rule over its lost territories. The fighting then moved to Signar's northern border, where it bogged down in the morasses of trench warfare, which eventually see Cador take the whole of Thornwood. The timing of this war in the north was doubly difficult for Signar. Relations with the Protector of Meneth had worsened considerably in the preceding years, and it was clear the Menites were violating the disarmament agreement reached after the Signaran Civil War. Herat Garrick Voyle capitalized on the distraction provided by the war to call a crusade against the enemies of his faith. This coincided with the appearance of the Harbinger of Meneth, a holy messenger who spoke Meneth's will in the Protectorate of the capital of Emor. War quickly erupted between Caspian and Sol. Signar was forced to divide its military between defending its capital and waging war in the north, while also positioning some portion of the military might along the western seaboard against with turmoil in the south steadily worsening, King Leto at last consented to invade Seoul. Signar forces breached Seoul's walls and swept into the city. Religious fervor gave the Salese defenders desperate fortitude and led to an exhausting year of street-to-street -street fighting. With Signar's armies unable to seize the, a quick victory, the Menites regrouped and eventually drove the Signarans back. Caspia was in turn invaded by the Menites, led by Harak Voyle himself. It was not until they were nearly at the gates of the castle of Rathorn the tide had turned at last. Just as Solon had been in the Civil War, Hyarks Voile was struck down. This victory arrived only after Voile had carved a tremendous path of destruction through the ancient capital, annihilating every obstacle that stood in his way. While fighting raged in the streets of Caspian Sol, the Northern Crusade moved into Lael with hopes of eventually delivering Minot's message to the territories of Kodor. Led by Severus, who would soon be named Hierarch after Voyle's death, the Northern Crusade claimed the Lely city of Laren, which became the Protectorate's capital in the north. For a time, the Iron Kingdoms were ravaged by open war until they were forced to join together and find even more insidious threat. Crix had secretly claimed the heart of the Thornwood and there had amassed the un unliving army with the aid of the shadowy Cephalix. Though the alliance of the Iron Kingdoms would not hold, it forced the armies of Western Amorin to band together to face a common threat for the first time since the rebellion against the Orgoth. Now moving on to a new era. The fighting did not stop. Kodor continued to test the mettle of its neighbors even as it consolidated its hold on Lael. Venter Rothorn IV returned at the head of an army of traitors in 609 AR before his final defeat. In the aftermath of this conflict, Letter Rothorn abdicated the throne in favor of his nephew, Julius. The King Julius sued for peace. Signing a historic accord with Kodor in 610 AR, Julius agreed that in the absence of a true sovereign of Lael, he would acknowledge Kodor's claim to the conquered territories. In return, Kodor agreed to pull back its forces and restore Signar's occupied territories. The accord was met with little fanfare. Though the truce ended open warfare, none was an optimistic, as he believed that peace would not hold. Despite this understanding between the great powers, Lael believed resistance fights on, but the cause seemed increasingly futile. The cities of western Lael have been fully occupied by Kodoran forces. The rail lines have been laid in the heart of the empire. The Laelese people have slowly become resigned to their new masters. Meanwhile, the missionary efforts of the Protectorate do not wane. Prosetalizing priests travel to the southern continents of Zoo seeking converts. 
Many, many travel unknown among the crews of Signar and Codorn ships, letting the impious nations carry them to those who have yet to hear the word of the Creator. Moving on to troubling developments. For centuries, there has been a small number of adherents that venerate the clockwork goddess of Cyrus, astronomers, engineers, and arcane mechanics who practice their faith by engaging in scientific pursuits, working on mathematical theory, crafting intricate machinery or mechanica, or deciphering codes and enigmas. Rumors suggested that these cults had built a sizable hidden temples across western Amoran, each filled with a dizzying array of machinery and protected by automated guardians. Some even whispered of high-ranking priests of Cyrus could transfer their souls into machine bodies to attain immortality. The, those suspicious were proven when the convergence of Cyrus revealed itself to the world. The convergence of Cyrus worked for years in secret temple facilities, constructing massive machines with which they intended to complete their great work and transform the very face of Cain to bring about the manifestation of their goddess. In pursuit of the agenda, the cult's machine army marched to claim the sites of geomantic potency vital to their work. Ranks of soldiers who had abandoned their fleshy bodies for mechanical shells struck unexpectedly across western Amoran, dispatching anyone who stood in their way. The powers of Amoran little comprehend the danger of this cult represents, although they are coming to learn at great cost. The Cephalax are another enigmatic and terrifying threat, dwelling beneath the land's surface and preying on those who come too close to their tunnels. These purely cerebral beings enslave other intelligent species to do their bidding. They perform extensive surgical and mechanical alterations on their slaves, turning them into mindless drudges and monstrosities. The need for brute flesh drives these beings to raid the people of the Iron Kingdom. Having been guided to the west by Vento Rothorn IV in 603 AR, the Scorn remain a hostile enemy. The Scorn are powerful warriors with a cruel temperament bent on conquest and slavery. They march to battle alongside great beasts and wield strange weapons and dark magic. Having built fortresses across the eastern waste, the Scorn constantly test the borders of the Iron Kingdom, waging war with Signar, the Protectorate, and Ios if they see fit. In the north, a new threat has emerged out of the wildernesses of Kodor's northern mountains. An inexplicable army of blighted Nis, Ogrun, and Dragonspawn. Eventually, it was discovered this was the army in the service of the Dragon Everblight, whose minions were all intent on slaughter and destruction. These abominations have spread southward through western Amoran in a span of a few short years. In that time, a new menace has become a dire threat to all the nations as its malignancy unfurls across the land. Whether as a consequence or a reflection of the chaos created by recent warfare, other sources of violence have erupted from the wilds. Trolkin creels that once peacefully inhabited the untamed regions take up arms and harass trade routes and train lines in Signar, Kodor, and even Ord. They have been seen marching alongside ever greater troll beasts that are capable of fighting on equal footing with even colossal warjacks. Closer to civilization, the ominous group of nature mystics called the Blackclads have gathered for reasons only they can comprehend. Working from the shadows, the Blackclads have orchestrated bloody clashes and catastrophic disasters, once elusive and rarely seen except among those living in the wild places. They now gather in greater numbers and have demonstrated they can muster their own armies when the need arises. Rumors suggested they draw on the Devourer Worm's powers to fuel their potent magics, and their abilities are savage and bloodthirsty.
Perhaps the chaos of the recent conflicts is simply a consequence of the fact that the Iron Kingdom stands on the cusp of great change, and change causes upheaval. It is the time of exploration, pushing back the boundaries of the map to expand humanity's understanding of the world. What lies ahead is unknown, but time has proven the warfare will follow humanity wherever it travels. The struggles for power and dominance continues beyond Amoran, driving innovation, discovery, and study at a pace unseen for generations. In the Iron Kingdom, strife and warfare are man's constant companions. Such is the cost of progress, and some will argue that the finest hours of men have often come in the tumult of battle. And Morn's heart fire, and perhaps even Cain as a whole, is stoked by the struggles around and within it. Regardless of underlying causes, the great powers of the Iron Kingdoms continue to build up the strength of their armies and look to their neighbors' borders. Each man and woman must choose the side, raise a weapon, and lift a banner in preparation for the strife to come. This is how war begins. Alrighty, class, that concludes the overview of the prehistory of the Iron Kingdoms. Written by Privateer Press, of course. Um, some updates with the new MK4 rules coming out in October. Um, we're going to be changing up a little bit. I won't be going into great detail about the cards and the abilities of such, you know, Warcasters, Warjacks, and all that, because, you know, they're probably all going to change. But as we continue this, uh, the next two factions we will be going into are the Kadorans and the Circle of Oberos, or, you know, the druids we discussed at the end of those prehistories. Uh, we will start with their stories at the beginning of their books, and then we will get after each individual warlock, warcaster, warjack, warbeast, you know, solos, units, and the like, as, as we discussed in the first chapter of this. Um, also, a piece of homework. If you know anybody that might be into listening to just the straight lore and then any stories I have from the actual fields of battle I've you know presented with these warjacks and warcasters and you know solos and the like, uh, feel free to show them this and hopefully they like it just as much as you do. Also, if you have any questions or any comments you'd like to make, please feel free to hit us up on our social media pages on Twitter or Instagram, and I will love to see them and hopefully answer them the best I can. All right, well, thank you guys. Have a good day. Class dismissed.